Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. ATN? It's, it's like kind of against my principles. Your principles? Craig, don't be an asshole. You don't have principles. Conversations about collaboration, episode 59. My friend Karen Reed is my first return guest. I suppose that I didn't offend her too much last time. We talk about her new book, Suddenly Hybrid, Managing the Modern Meeting, Human Resources, the Future of the Office, User Interfaces, Employee Training, and of course, Succession. Let's rock! Karen Weed, welcome back. You are the first repeat guest on my little pod. I feel so special, Phil. Thank you You so are much. special. <laughs> you are too kind. We're going to talk, talk about books, but let's just get this out of the way. And spoiler alert, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen Success, and I know you and I are both big fans. What did you think of the finale? Oh, I thought the finale was fantastic. But then I had to go and research what happened <laughs> because there were so many things that were nuanced uh, that I didn't immediately pick up on. And I just think it's brilliant how they crafted it all. And I love that. Tom became the ultimate villain, but the villain of like the good guys, I guess. I don't know. It was was hard for me to reconcile it all. And I love Greg. And so bringing Greg into the evil web was brilliant. And I think that their relationship is one of the most enjoyable uh, relationships on, on TV, on actually any screen right now. It's fascinating. Um, That's my favorite on the show. I love the Roman Jerry dynamic. Um, I don't know if you saw one of the YouTube videos. I might've sent it to you before with a succession as a romantic comedy between Greg and Tom. But they do the last <laughs> yes, tracks. Yes, yes, exactly. You know, and, and anytime I, I think about that bird where they were eating the bird under the napkins, uh-huh. I just laugh because it was just brilliant the way they crafted the whole thing. But the buildup throughout the season um, was so subtle. But then whenever it just exploded at the end, I just, I'm so excited for the next season. I can't, I don't know how long we have to wait. I don't know when it's coming out next. I don't know. I think that the next season is the last one from what I read. It's so sad. <laughs> yeah. I. Or is it? Maybe you wanted to end on a high note. But what's a high note for that show? I mean, they're all despicable, right? The minute you feel <laughs> sorry for Tom, he does something horrible. And it's, it's not like there's any good character. It's just right. less bad right now. Right. But I think that that is the really interesting thing about it because you hate everyone. Mm-hmm. You don't care about anyone, but you care about what happens to them. Like you want to know what happens to them. And I think right. that that is the sign of, of brilliant writing. Absolutely. I, I, I hate them all, but I think I hate Greg the least, but he also, he's not a good guy either. I mean, suing Greenpeace. What did he say? I want to sue my grandfather, but in a nice way. I know. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. the friendly lawsuits. Right. Exactly. Because <laughs> there are so many of those, right? <laughs> oh, well, I great. can rehash this all day, but let's get to the new book. And you got a surprise for other folks, but talk to me about suddenly hybrid and you have an interesting origin story. 
That's correct. So uh, Dr. Joe Allen and I uh, teamed up for our first book, Suddenly Virtual, Making Remote Meetings Work, after we had worked together as subject matter experts for a common client. Uh, and we did a webinar talking about you know, what would happen to meetings five, 10 years along. And, and our uh, postulation at the time was that we were going to have a lot of these virtual meetings with video at their core. Uh, well, that quickly became something of a reality about two weeks after the, the webinar back in 2020. And, and so that's how suddenly virtual began. And we were writing the book and having a great time and uh, you know, came up with what we hope is a really great guidebook for those who are still trying to figure out virtual meetings and making them really effective. And what we were finding is during the course of that, we were getting a lot of requests uh, from people who are asking about hybrid meetings. You know, do you have any tips for hybrid meetings? You know, what, what makes them different? How can you, you know, get business done whenever you have people who are in the same room and people who are joining virtually? And so in passing, we were having a conversation with our executive editor at Wiley, our publishing house. And I said to Joe, you know, do we have new information since suddenly virtual uh, that we could pass along to them? And Joe said, we could write a book about mm. <laughs> hybrid meetings. And our executive editor said, don't tease me. <laughs> what are you talking about? Do you think you could? And so suddenly, uh, you know, I guess that's a, the appropriate word for it here too. Suddenly hybrid became a thing as well. And, and we started writing that. Um, gosh, uh, I'm losing track of time, but it probably was in August of um, of last year, uh, and it's coming out two two twenty two, which I think is such Ooh. a cool release date. I know I didn't even think about it because I'd written it February second. I hadn't written it two two until you know maybe a month ago, and I thought that's kind of that's kind of cool. So uh, hopefully, suddenly hybrid is going to hit at the right time uh, because you know with us being still you know pandemic, post-pandemic-ish, wavering back and forth, um, there's certainly realization that uh, the way we gather is uh, never going to go back to just the way it was where everybody was in person. Instead, there's going to be some component of virtual coupled with in-person, and, and you need to figure out how to make that work effectively. Right. And it's also apropos because the approach is hybrid, whereas you're as more of a practitioner um, Joe is more of an academic background. So you're able to, just like in the previous book, fuse the two styles. So you're making practical recommendations. And in case someone's curious, they can read about different studies, but the person, and I know you summarize each chapter with uh, key takeaways, but it's a, a nice balanced approach. If it were purely academic, I don't think it would be that much fun to read, but if it were purely a pragmatist's uh, book, then you might say, well, how do you know that? Yeah, you lose a little bit of credibility. I think that's really um, a, a good observation. And I always think of myself almost as his color commentator. You know, he he provides, you know, the the theory. And then I say, yeah, I saw that in the wild whenever they did X, Y, Z. And, and I think that that works really well for us. Um, you know, I, I try to, to make his science more accessible, um, uh, but it makes me better because, you know, I'll have these own ideas of how things should work and 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 how I've seen them work. And he'll say, yeah, and the reason why that happens is because of this. I did this study back in whenever. And, and that's been a real joy uh, to discover as we work together. Yeah, I like the approach, but I do have a little bit of a bone to pick. 
not only did you interview this Phil Simon guy, you actually had to blurb the book. What the hell's the matter with you? <laughs> I knew a good thing when I saw it. So, you know, and I honestly, I think that's been one of the really fun things about writing the book and, and doing a bit of a publicity tour is I've gotten to meet some really fascinating, brilliant people in this space. And you're go on, go on. You're one of them for sure, uh, because we all kind of uh, you know play in the same sandbox, but we we do it with different tools, and and I think that that's been really fun. And so, including uh, you know how you can create collaboration for all, you know, it's certainly not uh, at the level that you would include in your books, but but to help people to understand that in in hybrid, you have to ensure presence for all, and you have to ensure collaboration for all, um, because otherwise you're going to create a two-tiered system um, where you know those who are you know in person, for example, and if you've got the leader in person as well, they're going to be the A team, and then oh yeah, somebody's you know dialing in. That's the B team, and that's that can't happen in a hybrid setting if you want to you know truly be a hybrid workforce. You've got to figure out a way to level the playing field. Hundred percent, and it's not quite as bad, maybe as I don't know the late '90s when someone would call in on a conference call, and that person would just be a voice emanating from one of those old plastic phones. Right, but right. I completely agree. I mean, are you going to take someone as seriously if they're just a Zoom avatar? And it does seem like the software vendors recognize this. I know you spoke with um, our friend Shiraz from Microsoft. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, as well as some of the things that Zoom seems to be doing to level the playing field. Yeah, well, and and that is the the big thing that people are trying to figure out from a, you know, a software and even from a hardware perspective is, you know, what can we do from a technology standpoint uh, to make that possible? Um, and there's a lot of really interesting innovation being done. Um, the challenge though, and, and Phil, we've talked about this in the past, is that you can come up with all of these really high-tech solutions, but I still see a lot of people struggling with the basics. Uh, and you know, that's a problem uh, because if you, you know, I, I ideally would like to have one main thing uh, solved before all others, which is let's figure out a way to get the camera lens in the screen so that when you look at the screen, you actually are looking into the eyes of the people that you are conversing with. If you're, you're, um, you know, speaking remotely, uh, you know, that's one that I think would make a huge difference just in terms of how people feel whenever they're in these meetings and they're joining virtually with folks who are in the room. Uh, and, you know, even just navigating some of the platforms, um, you know, in a hybrid meeting, you still have to have, a virtual meeting link because that's the only way that you're going to connect everybody, right? Um, so you have to have people who are still tech savvy and understand, you know, how to share their screens, which seems ridiculous. You would think that everybody would know at this point, but they don't. Uh, and and you know, improvements in the interface uh, sometimes can be problematic because people have figured out the old way to do it and they they haven't learned the new way. And a lot of times um, it's upon the individual, him or herself, to be able to figure it out because there's not a whole lot of training being done in terms of being able to manage the tech. Uh, and that creates um, inefficiencies and it also creates an unequal experience. You know, those who are tech savvy uh, 
find that, hey, I can manage this hybrid meeting pretty well, like, you know, even a virtual meeting pretty well, but those who aren't are really at a disadvantage. So I feel like training is more important now than ever as we're trying to, you know, create this inclusive meeting environment. And, you know, that's something I definitely underscore that hybrid meetings do hold a lot of promise uh, to be a really inclusive experience, but you have to have people trained up to understand, know, to know how to do it. You have to have the technology to support it uh, and just have a, a certain plan in, in place that allows you to make sure that the remote attendees are not second-class citizens. Yeah. In the book, you write a bit about the stigma of hybrid and how it's eroding, but to some extent it may still be there. And to your point, maybe it's because someone doesn't know how to use the tools or subconsciously the person's in an area without great internet reception. I don't think it's intentional, but you might be thinking, well, gosh, that person didn't have that many interesting things to say when in fact it just didn't come across clearly because of bandwidth. Right. It's the stigma of if you're joining virtually and, and right. And, and that has really been interesting too, right? So we talk about some of the studies that uh, found that the old stigmatization of working from home really diminished greatly during the pandemic because, you know, it used to be a situation where, oh yeah, that person works from home. They're probably sitting in their pajamas all day and, and, you know, drinking coffee, maybe returning a couple of emails. Well, then suddenly everybody was in the situation that they stigmatized and thought, oh, you know what? This actually is work. And in fact, it's, it's sometimes uh, more exhausting work. And pajamas uh, are underrated. Exactly. Exactly. If you're working 10 hour days, right. You know, and you're on camera for eight hours a day. So there there's been a, a change in mindset that has made hybrid even possible because if that hadn't happened, um, people would have been probably really reluctant to say, yeah, I want to work from home a couple of days a week. They probably would have been concerned about how that would impact their career. I think that has lessened to a great degree. Now we'll see how the pendulum swings, you know, whenever, you know, we get hopefully into a new state of normalcy. Um, But, you know, at this point, you have to be, if you want to work hybrid, you have to be tech savvy enough to ensure that you don't disappear. Um, Because, go go ahead. I was going to say, if, if you just think, you know, I can work from home and just dial in and not turn your camera on and you're still going to be, um, you know, an equally valued member of the team in that meeting, you're not going to be because you're not going to have as much presence as those who are in the same room or have turned on their camera. In fact, I think it was maybe six months ago or so, Zoom announced new hardware. It was basically a dedicated screen apart from your computer that you would always leave on. Yeah. Yeah. There's some icky privacy concerns about that. But if you think about it, if you're working in a physical office or a cubicle, well, that people can always see you and it's one fewer thing for you to do. So I understand something like that, but I'm completely with you on the training. And it's remarkable to me how fine I wrote Zoom for dummies and Slack for dummies. I know what I'm talking about. Not everyone knows what everything can do, but there are so many people who don't know the basics. And I'm, I'm just wondering, I'd love to get your thoughts. I, it seems to me that companies haven't invested as much in the requisite training. I mean, is it laziness? Is it to think, oh, they'll just figure it out on their own? Because I, I forget the time that we waste, even the features that could save time or could help us collaborate better or have the better meeting. And people go, oh, you can do that? I go, yeah. How do you not know that? But again, I'm too close to it. But I don't know. What, what do you think? Is it just, um, is it 
chinsiness or is it, are the tools that intuitive and people just don't, I don't know. I, I I'm surprised more people aren't going to training. I think that they are going to training, but there are so many different training needs that are competing. Uh, you know, it, I work with lots of training folks, uh, in my business and, and they are all kind of drinking from the fire hose, trying to figure out how to skill up the workforce because, you know, think about sales, for example, you know, you have people who are part of your team who have been very successful in sales in the handshake model. You know, you go out, you shake hands, you build relationships, and, and that's how you make the sale. You know, they had to completely switch in, in many cases to a virtual one. And it does require a different skill set. Um, and and a skill set that is um, very wide. <laughs> and, and so trying to plug all those holes of, of skill gaps is, is really daunting. Uh, but I think there, so there's that, there's just this overwhelming amount of training that needs to be done on so many different subject areas. Then there's also a misconception that people will figure it out on their own or that they'll be motivated enough to figure it out on their own. So I, I tell the story of, you know, being in a multiple one-on-one sessions. I was working with a, a company that wanted me to train the, their entire sales force on virtual presence. And I was in this one-on-one session with uh, a salesperson and her image on her, on her screen was just so grainy. It looked terrible. And I said, you know, what, what, what webcam are you using? And she goes, oh, the one that's on my laptop. And I said, but didn't they send you an external webcam. She said, yeah, it's in the box. It's in my closet. I'm like, what are you talking about? Why is it in your, your closet still? And she kept it there because there was this, um, you know, confusion, concern, um, unwillingness. I'm not sure what it was to actually set it up. She didn't know how to do it. And so my one-on-one session with her was helping her to unbox her webcam and plug it in. It should be in tech support, huh? Geek squad, look out. Karen Reed. Right, right. And, and believe me, I am, I should not be in the tech support role, but, you know, I know more than most, which, which is helpful in my, my job, certainly. But, you know, that is the situation for a lot of um, companies where, you know, they might have given them the tools but they're not empowering them to use them. And that's everything from, you know, hardware like an external webcam to software like Zoom, like um, like Slack, like Teams. And the funny thing is, it wouldn't take that much to help people to really use it, you know, to its maximum impact. You know, you get stick Phil Simon in a room with people for a half an hour and let him tell um, your folks, you know, not just some basics, but some really handy tricks, you will get so much more out of your investment than if you just say, oh, hey, we get we got this tool, figure it out. Here's maybe like a, a link to, you know, some video tutorials or some text tutorials. Right. That's not getting the job done. And I think that's going to create a productivity dip at some point. 100%. I think about when I was writing those books, it was my job to learn. Or when I was a software consultant, sometimes I do public training classes. The attendee's job was to learn. When I would argue you put the onus on the employees to pick this stuff up on their own, well, they've got a big job as it is. Right. They're probably overwhelmed. Um, yeah, they're not commuting, so they do save some time or they can work in their pajamas. They have to put makeup on, whatever. But they may have to deal with their kids because they're not going to school or other um, inconveniences caused by the pandemic. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It's remarkable to me when I throw out a number for folks to say, look, 
you know, it's six hours of training. It's not going to be $50. Right. Record it. Right. Any other employee that you bring on can watch this. Right. So do you value this tool or not? And there's a lot of hemming and hawing. And I would have expected having written both those books to do a little bit more training than I've done, but you know, can bring a horse to water and all that. I want to get back to something you said a little bit earlier about UIs and changing them. Hmm. I've been saying now for a year and a half that Zoom, the app, not the browser extension, could use a fresh coat of paint. Um, They've made a couple of tweaks around the edges, but it's largely the same. Uh, My theory is that to your point, 300 million people use it, give or take, they don't want to make that big change in the middle of it, even though some some folks internally might admit, yeah, a little bit long in the tooth. We probably want to make it a little bit more contemporary, but it gets into the whole training thing. So my theory is that they'd like to do something, but there could be so much potential disaffection and confusion and calls to customer service and outrage on social media. Uh, I don't know. Just what do you think? I think that would be a big mistake <laughs> because the, the beauty of Zoom for many is the simplicity of it. Uh, and for someone like you, Phil, who can appreciate and understand and enjoy the bells and whistles, that's one thing. But I would say the vast majority of folks, their their biggest skill that they want to learn is how to share their screen and stop sharing their screen. And I work with lots of people who can't do that. So I think that that would be taking away their secret sauce by doing a wholesale change. Uh, I think any any major change they they make, they'd have to do very delicately and uh, not do it, um, you know, in a way where people log in and they don't know what they're looking at. Because if that is the situation, you will have people revolt, <laughs> including no, myself. <laughs> right. I just I think about the effort effortlessness of Apple changes when there's a new iOS version. You, you pretty much figure it out, right? True, Apple's very good but, at that. But think about like the port issue. Like we, I have complained about this. Do not, get me, do not get me started. Right, right. Where they went from having all of these ports and I can plug in all my stuff. And then I had to buy a new computer. I'm like, wait, where do the ports go? Wait, I have to buy a gazillion dongles. I don't want to do that. No. So I ended up buying an old computer because I wanted all the ports. That would be my concern if Zoom would try to change things up. They, you know, they would have this really cool product, you know, this this amazing interface that can do all this stuff. But you're going to have so many people who will say, I just want the old one. I had that figured out and I felt comfortable with it because really the goal of the interface is to make business happen. And honestly, there's not that much in terms of functionality that needs to be there to, you know, have that happen. Um, So, yeah. I'm with you. I, I mean, and I think about when Microsoft, I think it was in 2011, forced everyone to use the office ribbon. Oh, right. And there was a huge rebellion. Oh, so I was at a hospital in upstate New York on a consulting gig and they had postponed the change forever. And once yeah. they had no choice, people were calling the help desk in droves. How do I sort data in Excel? Right. And I remember this macro media video that I found that let you show I wanted file open and then it would show you a video of how you do that in the ribbon. And eventually people did get used to it. But yeah, I so yes, you want to avoid that type of employee disaffection even outside of a pandemic, much less in one. Right. I was going to say also consider the timing of it. You know, right now we still live in a state of flux and and constant change and uncertainty. You know, making any change in in the Zoom interface might just push people over the edge. (laughs) 
So I would say, let's wait. Let's okay. wait until people really master the current one and feel like they're on, on uh, you know, sure footing in, in other aspects of their lives before changing it. That's my two cents. Yeah, I mean, I have logged into Slack and go, where did that go? And eventually yeah. I figure it out. But I, I have seen some statistics about how when people want to do something, they don't want to learn. They just want to do it. Yeah. And even something like a Google search for them is a bit of an inconvenience. Um, put on your Swami hat, let's say two years down the road, one way or another, COVID's gone. Um, what percentage of meetings are hybrid or what percentage of time are we in the workforce? How do you see things playing out as a general rule? I think if you're a knowledge worker, uh, you can anticipate a hybrid option. Uh, now, there are exceptions for sure, because there should be. You know, I think the the key is giving people a way to work that they feel most comfortable in and where they're going to get where you're going to get the most out of them and they'll feel most productive. Sometimes that is in the office. People like the the hum of the office nine to five, Monday through Friday. That's great. There should be places for them to go to to work that fit that mode. Um, there will also be folks who say, I never want to go into the office. You know, I, I want to work from home, you know, fully. Uh, and there will be options for those folks. Um, you know, maybe I, not I at the same company though, right? No, not at the, they're all going to be, I think there's going to be a lot of self-selection uh, where people uh, start looking for not just the job, but uh, the job environment in which they can work. Uh, so that's changed how HR has to approach advertising for their jobs, right? You know, you know, they people want to know: is this a fully remote position? Is this a fully in the office position? Is this a hybrid position? And and they're making decisions based upon that. So I think that there will be um, a lot of different. Um, options, but I think the majority of them are going to be hybrid. And that's just really a result of people through the pandemic realizing that they appreciate flexibility. Uh, And we've seen so many cases of people who have left their current jobs because they were not given a flexible option. So people will vote with their feet uh, and it's going to be up to companies to decide, okay, how far along the hybrid continuum do we want to go? Uh, And not just giving it lip service, because if you say, oh yeah, we're hybrid, we're hybrid, but you're really in an in-office culture and you haven't made adjustments, it's not going to work. Well, you make me think that you hacked into my computer and viewed a blog post that I have running (laughs) in two days, because there was a company called almanac.io and they're working on a more collaborative type of document. Anyway, I saw that on their site when they list their management team, it's Karen Reed, um, South Carolina, Phil Simon, Gilbert, Arizona. That to me is such an important signal that yes. you're not just saying we like empl- remote employees. Well, our leadership lives way the hell all over the place. Right. That to me, to, to your point about HR, I mean, again, it, it could be lip service. I doubt it when you put it on there. But to me, that really signifies the company's commitment to long-term remote options and flexibility. Yeah. And, and actually, to that point, if you are a leader and you are leading a hybrid team, it is really important for you to think about where you're leading that meeting from. Uh, if you are somebody who's in office every day and you're leading all those meetings from within a conference room, uh, what signal does that send? No, instead, think about sometimes leading from a virtual position. You know, even if you're at your desk and you're joining via Zoom or whatever um, you know platform you're using, that helps you to remember what it's like to join a meeting virtually uh, and also sends a signal that, hey, 
it is totally fine where you join the meeting from. It makes no difference whether, whether you're in the, the brick and mortar or whether you are uh, joining from the, the coffee shop down the street. It does not matter. Mm-hmm. Um, switching gears for a second, you got another book project, Busy Bee. <laughs> <laughs> only only yeah. I can obsess about writing books, damn it. Well, That's my I mean, game. The, the funniest thing is after I wrote my first book on camera coach uh, that came out in 2017, I said, That's it. I have nothing left to say. So now book number four is being written even as we speak. We're excited about it. So so Joe and I were asked uh, to write a book for the Dummies series. So you are very familiar, uh, Phil Simon, with the Dummies series. I just so copy and pasted a bunch of stuff from Wikipedia. No one's ever <laughs> called me out on my bullshit. <laughs> hey, that's an idea. We are just starting it. But this is going to be on running effective meetings for dummies. So this is really a very strategic how-to handbook on, you know, how to make sure that you're running a meeting that gets, you know, the job done. So it's it's really designed for those who are maybe new managers who have never run a meeting themselves or perhaps managers who are running meetings that they're not satisfied with. They're not getting the outcomes they want and they just feel like they they need to do more to to fix them. Uh, so I'm excited about it just because, you know, it's it's kind of fun being a dummy author. Uh, they sent me a bunch of swag, which I thought was pretty cool. So I have all of this, you know, black and, and yellow yeah, stuff. The t-shirt, <laughs> the pen, the mask. Exactly. The, exactly. Which um, is so funny. Yeah, I was wearing a dummy shirt the other day at the gym. It's, it's an interesting conversation starter yeah. and started <laughs> talking about Zoom with, with the guy who actually, um, a um, huge fan of, of Better Call Saul, but that, that's a different discussion. But right. getting, getting back to your point, um, I was just reading an article in the Wall Street Journal about I think it was titled something like that could have been an email or it should have been an email right yes. meetings and yeah. they broke down the meetings into different buckets and I never really thought of it that way but it does make sense right because not all meetings are created the same there have been some in which I was an active participant we needed to make a decision about X or we were collaborating or brainstorming or whatever and there were some that were more informational and I thought about hmm you know how many times were people that deliberate and saying look because this is meeting type number one we need to structure it this way, or you yeah. don't need to be here. So yeah. I, I, I can see why they want you to do that book. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge part of what you should be doing before any meeting, which is deciding it, it should be a meeting at all. <laughs> Joe would highly advocate this. You know, he, he says, you know, ask yourself two questions. What's the purpose of the meeting? Uh, and does it require collaboration? And you have to say, you know, for the second one, if it requires collaboration, yeah, it does need, need to be a meeting, um, especially if a decision needs to be made. But those information sharing meetings, don't put people in those. You know, figure out a way to do that asynchronously. That right. is another great way that technology is enabling, uh, you know, us to be able to share information in a way that's not eating up your calendar. Uh, you know, so that can be in the form of, you know, record yourself on, you know, Zoom, Teams, whatever, Slack, uh, you know, giving that presentation, send it out to people so that they can consume it at a time that is convenient right. for them. Uh, you know, there are a lot of ways to deliver a message with more nuance now, even if it's just audio alone versus just sending off, you know, a really long email or a really, um, you know, ponderous PDF. Uh, you know, there, there's lots that can be done to keep you from clogging up your calendars, because that is something that we definitely saw during the pandemic, where we had this meetingization of our culture. Right. And 
you know, you know, I've, I've talked about this before with you where Zoom fatigue is not uh, the fault of the video. It's the fault of the number of meetings that we are having. <laughs> and, and that that needs to be recalibrated uh, because that that's what's sapping everybody's energy and keeping them from getting the actual work done. Right. right? Yeah. I know you use Slack as well. Have you messed around with Slack clips? I have. I love it. I'm so excited about it. I thought that was a great move. Um, it was a great you know, move. Of course, um, of course, I love that. <laughs> I'm a video evangelist. So I'm like, yes, that's fantastic. I'm a big fan. And when I'm diagnosing technical support issues, because something with my website or something else, I always use a Loom video because quite frankly, I don't want to type out the email. Right. right? And I will show them things and explain them in a way that's more efficient yeah. But it also, I think it saves time, but also lets people see what's going on. In fact, I can remember 10, 12 years ago using a tool called join.me and it was a WordPress plugin. Long story short, I recorded a quick video. This is, oh, we know exactly what's going on. By the way, thank you for doing this. Um, this really made it easier. More of our clients should do this. And I thought, well, you know, it, it's selfish. I don't right. want to spend the time and I want you to solve it quicker. So why wouldn't you give someone the tools um, hopefully more people are using them, but um, I I can't imagine spending 15 minutes on an email to your point with PDFs and screenshots and Google Docs and all that. It's just, let me record the damn thing. Right. Well, I, I share your concern that uh, people may not be using them as much as they should. And, and that's honestly the reason why I have my business, because for example, part of my coaching usually involves people recording themselves and uploading their video to a feedback platform that we use where we give them individual critiquing of what they've done. I will hear time and again, oh my gosh, I did this 30 times. It took me three hours to do a two-minute video because we have um, so much um, you know, concern about how we're coming across. We're our own worst critics. We see things nobody else sees. Right. And, and it, it creates this barrier to our authenticity because people think if they're on camera that they're performing and it's not, it's just a conduit for your conversation. You just can't see your conversation partner very well, but you have to remove some of that, um, you know, quest for perfection. Because if you're trying to be perfect, that's unrealistic because you're just having a conversation with somebody. And I'm sure, Phil, if we go back and listen to this, you know, there are a gazillion times when we've messed up the syntax of what we've been saying. We might have tripped over words. That's just how we are in real life. And ideally, that's what you want to be when you're on camera too. But we get in our own heads so much. So my job right. is, you know, and an on-camera coach is to help to remove some of those barriers to your authenticity. So you can just use it. Uh, in the way it's designed to be, which is to be able to deliver a message with nuance, to be able to do it efficiently uh, and, you know, in full. Right. I'm with you. And I know a lot of actors and musicians have a hard time listening to themselves or watching themselves because they only notice the flaws. I get all that. And we're all guilty of it. I just think it makes us human beings. And if I'm giving a talk and I use an um or an ah, which I do pretty infrequently, but no one bats a thousand Right. Uh, I can tell you that's a lot better than my college calculus professor who is <laughs> allergic to silence. Every sentence in between ah uh, and um, and it was just, you actually would count them. Um, yeah, crazy. Right, right, yeah. Uh, and now you'll say a bunch of ums because you're talking about it. <laughs> I will try not to. Well, it's funny. They do that a lot on succession, especially Kendall. I'm pretty yeah. sure it's intentional. Well, but also it's important to note that what you're talking about is, is disfluencies. You don't want to eliminate all of them because a lot of those uh, ums and uhs and things like that actually create a certain 
musicality to our delivery that makes you you. So if you take all of that away, it can make you sound affected. Mm. The ones that you want to eliminate are the ones that are between sentences, the ones that you're talking about, like your calculus teacher would do whenever he was trying to think about what next big concept he was going to present. Uh, so instead of having silence there, he would just add a pause. Mm. So, you know, he wouldn't have a pause. He would just insert what I call verbal placeholders, um, between those two concepts. Those are the ones you want to get rid of (laughs) because those are the ones that will cause people to start, you know, counting them on their fingers. (laughs) Yeah, I've always said that as a speaker, one of the most effective things you can do is embrace the silence. In fact, there are some jokes from some of my favorite comedians that only work, I would argue, because there's a five second pause. For sure. Because you have to give people time to process it. I, I actually use that example, Phil, in my training where imagine a comedian telling a joke, delivering a punchline, and then instead of giving time for the audience to laugh, just moves on to the next joke you know, the value of that punchline is lost or greatly diminished because you don't give them space to think about it and then get it and then laugh. It's really important to understand that timing. Yeah. Hopefully we'll get better at the virtual or the hybrid meetings, because you could argue that there is a cadence to have people talking and you might know me or you, and or you know, he's going to say something again, but virtually, especially if there's any kind of latency with the um, bandwidth, people might lose some of that and people are jumping to get in there. Kind of like you could argue that if it were an asynchronous discussion, say text-based and in Slack or teams or whatever, more people chime in because they want to be seen or just like responding all on an email, right? You're okay. You're basically, pardon my language, pissing on the fire hydrant to prove that you were there. Right. Yes. All right. Okay, fine. I get it. You were answering this email at 11 o'clock. You're a hard worker. Yippee. But did you really, I don't know, maybe, maybe we'll get better at this. So there'll be less noise to use your term and more of a signal. Um, But to your point, I think a lot of it will be cultural. And if the culture is such that, you know, you have to make your mark and say something, even if you're not really saying anything real, then I I do think it's going to be fascinating to see how this all plays out. And and I, I completely agree with you. Some people, some companies, some managers are going to do it a hell of a lot better than others. You have to be a proactive facilitator. If you're leading one of these meetings, you have to come to some agreement on how you're going to take turns to combat what you're talking about. Just people trying to butt in, you know, anytime there's a sliver of air, uh, you have to really codify the procedures that you're all going to stick to uh, validating different forms of participation, meaning not just the spoken one, but also the chat, you know, letting people know that it's okay to participate by in a nonverbal way by putting your ideas in chat. And then as the leader attending to it, there are different techniques that you can use to make sure that everybody's voice is heard. And when I say voice is heard, it's not necessarily speaking up. It can be weighing in uh, with a well thought out uh, commentary in chat. And then the leader should be reading it aloud or have an in-room ally Uh, for the virtual person. That is a technique that I have seen done at some companies where they'll buddy people up and say, you know, Phil's in the room, Karen's joining virtually. Uh, Karen has something to say. She'll notify Phil and Phil will say, hey, Karen would like to weigh in here Uh, because it's easier for the in-person uh, attendee to get the attention of the leader than the virtual one. So there there are different ways that you can mitigate uh, some of the, you know, impacts of of having people present in different ways, but you have to 
really be intentional about it. And my biggest concern is that there's not going to be any forethought. And those who are, you know, in the room will monopolize the conversation. Uh, and those who are joining virtually will be sidelined. So the, the first thing that has to happen is the leader needs to be aware. Uh, then the, the leader needs to make everybody aware of who all is in the room, <laughs> physical and virtual, uh, and then come up with some strategies to be able to remind people of that. So one other policy I'll share with you, I know we're tight on time, but uh, is those who have done hybrid for a long time have a policy of remote speak first. <laughs> so say that you have a topic to discuss rather than uh, throwing it out to the people in the physical room, you throw it out first to the people who are joining virtually and say, you know, hey, Karen, you're joining remote. What do you think? It immediately gets people, you know, in the mindset of, okay, all the people who are in this discussion are not necessarily people I can touch right now. Uh, and it gives them an opportunity to weigh in, uh, you know, where otherwise perhaps they'd be fighting for airtime. Right. Good stuff, Karen. I enjoyed it. Good luck with the books, plural. And I can't <laughs> wait to get the new one. Thanks, Phil. Thank you for all your help with the book. Your, your contributions were great. Thanks. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.